As Sam mentioned, uh, my wife and our children were members of this church, and <clears throat> I just want to say before I start what a privilege it is uh, to be members of this church and to be in a place that has such a, a rich history of faithfulness and is simultaneously so alive and thriving, and uh, there should be more places like this, and let's, I'm just, we're just thankful to God to be here. Pray with me. Lord, we believe in the Holy Spirit. We know that you're present with us. And so we ask that the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So today we're finishing a sermon series on the book of Haggai. And the book of Haggai ends with God promising to invest one man's life with incredible significance. So first, I want to explain what God promised to do with this particular man's life. And then I want to show you how what God did through that man mattered so much because of how it related to what God did through Jesus. And finally, I want us to see how what God did for that man, the thing that gave his life a towering and eternal significance, God is doing something very similar for every person who trusts in Christ. So, God made that man's life matter by giving him a particular relationship, by drawing him into a particular relationship. And along with that relationship came a responsibility. And that made his life matter. So God brings him into a relationship. The relationship carried with it a responsibility. And the responsibility grants his life significance. God gives that very same relationship and that very same responsibility to every person who is united to Christ by the Holy Spirit and made a member of his body. So, first let's see what God promised to do. Turn with me to the book of Haggai. Uh, it's our fifth week in Haggai, so by now, hopefully we can find the book of Haggai. <laughs> what you want to do to get to Haggai is you go to Matthew and flip backward because Haggai is the third to last book in the Old Testament. So we're in chapter 2, and look at verse 20 with me. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Now check that date against verse 10. That's the same date. So God speaks to Haggai twice on a single day. Haggai had already delivered a promise, a prophecy that starts, the one that starts in verse 10. He'd already delivered that earlier that day. God had already spoken to him. Maybe Haggai's headed home. He doesn't think he has anything else to do that day. But God speaks to him a second time. And God has a message for a very specific person. Haggai is supposed to give this message that God speaks to him to Zerubbabel. Here's what he says. Look at verse 21. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am going to, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and overthrow the throne of kingdoms. 
I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms and of the nations. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts. Here's that promise that I was mentioning. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, when you first read it, that promise may sound obscure, but it's actually connected into many things across the entire Bible. We're going to unpack some of those. It's going to be worth it to dig into it. And thankfully, we can simplify what God is saying through Haggai to Zerubbabel into two phrases. On that day, that's when God is going to carry out his promise, and we'll talk about that in a moment, I will make you like a signet ring. That's what God is promising to do. So on that day, that's when it's going to happen, I will make you a signet ring. That's what God is promising. So first we need to talk about the signet ring. Now, signet ring is a term you may recognize. Uh, People still use signet rings. A signet ring is a ring that has a large round face on it and there's a design on the face and you press the ring down into soft wax and it'll leave an impression on the wax. You can use it to seal, you can use them to seal letters. Um, But in the ancient world, signet rings were used by kings as seals of their official authority. They would stamp official pronouncements or letters with their signet ring to show that it bore their authority with it. So signet rings show up elsewhere in the Bible. Um, In the book of Exodus, when Pharaoh is elevating Joseph to a high place ruling over his entire kingdom, he gives him his signet ring so that Joseph can act in his name. Now, here we're not talking about an actual signet ring. God is comparing Zerubbabel to a signet ring. And in comparing Zerubbabel to a signet ring, God is promising to do two things, two very important things. And the first is completely straightforward. The first thing God is promising in comparing Zerubbabel to a signet ring is that he's going to rebuild the temple through Zerubbabel. And rebuilding the temple is what the book of Haggai is all about. The temple, as we've seen over the past five weeks, the temple was destroyed when Israel is taken into exile in Babylon. And now they're back in the land. It's 70 years later. They're working to rebuild the temple, but the rebuilding of the temple has stopped because the enemies of the Jews have appealed to the king of Persia against them and have come with arms, with weapons to stop them. And so the building has stopped. And now here is God saying to Haggai, tell Zerubbabel that he is the man for the job. He is going to finish the building. It is time to restart. It's going to work. You're going to be able to finish it this time. That's the first thing God is promising by saying Zerubbabel is like a signet ring on his hand. But why Zerubbabel? Why is he the right one to have this incredible honor, this this deep and powerful responsibility to rebuild the temple of the living God? We see the answer to that in terms of the second thing that God is promising to do through Zerubbabel. So the first one is rebuild the temple. The second thing God is promising when he compares the Ribabel to a signet ring is that 
Zerubbabel is going to relate in a particular way to the Messiah, to Jesus. In fact, God is promising that the Messiah is going to be descended from Zerubbabel. He's saying the Messiah will come from his line. He's going to be one of his descendants. And we know that God is promising that because of something he says elsewhere about a signet ring. Elsewhere in the Bible, in the book of Jeremiah, God also compares a king to a signet ring. Now, Zerubbabel is not a king. He's a governor. But in Jeremiah, God compares the king of Israel to a signet ring on his right hand. In the book of Jeremiah, the king that God is talking about is Jeconiah. Jeconiah was one of the last kings of Israel before they're taken into exile. He was a wicked king. His father was a wicked king. His uncle was a wicked king. And what God says about Jeconiah in the book of Jeremiah is this. He says, If Jeconiah were a signet ring on my right hand, I would tear it off and hurl it into exile. So what God is saying in this line about the signet ring in Jeremiah is that the wicked kings of Israel have so perverted their authority and so led their people astray that he's removing them from being able to represent him. It's like in the book of Esther when the king of Persia takes back his signet ring from Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Things go very badly for Haman after that. Israel is meant to be this light to the nations. God has given Israel the very task that he gave to Adam to build a glorious civilization that God will dwell with, that will establish peace and justice on the world, prepare the world for God's presence, prepare the world to be a temple, holy to God, where people love one another and enjoy one another and God. And the kings of Israel are meant to be leading them toward this future and instead they've led them astray and so God tears their authority away from them and cast them into exile. And in that prophecy in Jeremiah, God says something else. He says that Jeconiah will never again sit on the throne of Israel, will never again sit on the throne of David, of King David, and that his children won't either. But in that same passage in Jeremiah, just a few verses later, just after this curse on Jeconiah, God promises to rise up out of the line of David a righteous branch. He says this righteous branch will be a king who will rule with justice and establish peace. So there's a puzzle about the signet ring. God has torn it off his hand. He's rejected the wicked kings of Israel. And at the same time, he's promised that somehow there will be through the descendants of the kings of Israel the true king who will set all things right. That's the puzzle that's resolved in our passage. Zerubbabel is Jeconiah's grandson. He's not king because there's no kingdom in Israel at this point. They're under the authority of Persia. He would be king. He's just governor. And God is not yet providing a new king for Israel, but he's promising to restore the line of David 
to renew the promise of the Messiah through Zerubbabel. So to recap, this is a very big promise that we get. God is promising two extremely significant things. The first is that Zerubbabel will be the one to rebuild the temple. And remember, so much of what Israel is about is captured in the temple. The temple is the place where God's presence dwells on earth in the Old Testament. They build the temple and at the very center of the temple is the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, God manifests his Shekinah glory, his glory cloud. It's a manifestation of the Holy Spirit into time and space. A thick cloud where God is sitting on the mercy seat above the Ark of the Covenant, enthroned between the cherubim. That's God's presence on earth to dwell with his people, promising to find a way to reconcile God and man and to bring about the glorious plan that he has for his creation through Israel. That's the first thing God is promising to restore the temple. And the second thing is to restore the line of David that's going to produce the Messiah. So that's what this promise means in the context of the Old Testament. But now, look with me at that other phrase I told you to focus on. On that day. When is God going to make Zerubbabel like a signet ring? When is this all going to take place? On that day. And that phrase, on that day, demands that we look forward to the New Testament. When Haggai heard the phrase, on that day, because remember, God is speaking to Haggai. Haggai's back home and God appears to him again. Maybe he's startled. God is speaking to him. And as soon as Haggai hears, on that day, Haggai knows exactly what day God is talking about. And we know that Haggai would have known what God was talking about because everyone in Israel would have known what he was talking about. That day is the day of the Lord. It's a common phrase in the Old Testament. It comes up all the time in the prophets. The day of the Lord is the day of God's climactic intervention into history to overcome the rebellion against him, to set things right, to bring about the completion of the plan that he's had since the beginning. Now, as soon as we hear that God is saying something about the day of the Lord, about that day, we know he's talking about Jesus because Jesus is the one who brings the day of the Lord. The first sermon ever preached about Jesus after he dies and is resurrected, after he ascends into heaven, the first sermon ever preached about him by someone else is all about how he fulfilled the promise to bring the day of the Lord. This is Peter in Pentecost, Acts 2. The Holy Spirit comes upon Peter and the rest of the apostles. They speak in tongues. Everybody comes to try to find out what's going on. And Peter says, look at the prophet Joel. The day of the Lord has come in Christ's incarnation, death, and resurrection. So we're actually living in the day of the Lord right now. We are living in the day of the Lord. In fact, A.D. literally means the day of the Lord. And um, the day of the Lord will come to its completion when Christ returns to bring heaven to earth. So we need to see how the promise in Haggai is about Zerubbabel, but it's also about Jesus. Zerubbabel is called my servant in the passage that we just read in this promise, my servant Zerubbabel. But Jesus is the ultimate servant of the Lord. He's the suffering servant 
the one who the prophet Isaiah tells us will lead the second exodus, where he guides his people, not just out of bondage to some particular nation, but out of bondage to sin and death. And God says he'll make Zerubbabel like his signet ring, but Jesus is the true signet ring of God, the exact imprint of his nature, the one who makes visible the invisible God and who is even now reigning at the right hand of the Father in heaven until he returns to bring the day of the Lord to its completion. What Zerubbabel did matters because of what Christ did. And who Zerubbabel was matters because of who Christ was. To show you that, turn forward a couple pages. Go to the Gospel of Matthew. Go right to the beginning of Matthew with me. The ending of the story is all about Jesus, the story that God's writing in history. And because Zerubbabel is related to Jesus, Zerubbabel matters. The beginning of Matthew is a genealogy, right? And I don't know if you've noticed this, but uh, in the genealogy of Matthew, there's a structure to it. There's sort of three pieces. Matthew starts with Abraham. That makes sense to start with Abraham. Abraham is the one who has repeated to him, renewed the promise that God gives to Adam, the promise that he gives to Noah. He gives it to Abraham to say what he's going to do through Israel to carry out his plan for creation, to bring it to a successful completion. So then it goes from Abraham down to David, and David is the next sort of point in the genealogy, and that makes sense. There's no one more important in the Old Testament than David, or it's very hard to find competitors. He's up there with everybody else. The Messiah is the son of David. The righteous branch is going to be raised up for David. Who starts the third section? It's Jeconiah. That's the same guy that God said he's like a signet ring he's going to tear from his hand and throw into exile. Why is he in the genealogy? And look who comes next. It's Shealtiel. That's the child, the son of Jeconiah, about whom God said, Jeconiah, neither you nor your children will ever sit on the throne of Israel. But Zerubbabel comes next. So the line of promise that leads to the Messiah links from Abraham all the way to Jesus because of Zerubbabel. The story works backward. We see the significance of the story only once we capture the ending. And stories always work that way. So think about if there's a story about um, an athlete and the athlete experiences an injury. Now it's going to make a big difference if that injury is the beginning of a downward spiral or this critical moment that becomes part of a dramatic comeback. You don't know the significance of the story until you see it in light of the ending. Now that idea, C.S. Lewis thought, applies to heaven and hell as well. That the ending works backward to shape the beginning. 
Lewis talks about this in his book, The Great Divorce, about heaven and hell, and he, he speculates that heaven will work backwards, that it'll work retrospectively. So he says, for people in heaven looking back over their lives, no matter how hard your life was, no matter how difficult, whatever challenges you went through, whatever sufferings, whatever sorrows, you'll look back at your life from heaven and you'll say, those were my first steps into paradise. And Lewis thought that hell worked the same way too. He said that people never dream how damnation will spread back into their past and contaminate the pleasure of sin. So if you're in hell looking back at your life, no matter what successes or pleasures you had, it'll look like one dreary march downward into darkness. Because the, end, the story is about Jesus, who Zerubbabel was matters. And because the story ends with Jesus and his work, what Zerubbabel did matters. Think about the temple that Zerubbabel leads the people to complete. That temple, that's where, G, where Mary brings Jesus as a baby to devote him to the Lord. The incarnate God as an infant, is coming into the very temple that's supposed to be, be God's presence with his people. And here God is tabernacling with his people. As the incarnate son of man. It's the same temple where Jesus comes as a boy to teach the elders of the people the law. Here is God himself in human flesh teaching people about himself. In that temple, the temple, this same temple is where Jesus goes the week of his death to overturn tables and clear out money changers and merchants. And it's the temple where when Jesus breathes his final breath on the cross, the curtain that separates the Holy of Holies, not just from the rest of the temple, but separates the Holy of Holies from the whole world, that curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. And it's torn in two because what the temple always pointed toward has now been accomplished. Zerubbabel gets to build the shadow and the shadow matters because the reality arrives. Because on the cross, Christ makes possible what the temple was pointing toward, which is reconciliation between God and man, forgiveness of sins, a way forward, for broken people to become part of God's incredible plan for his beautiful and glorious creation. So we've seen that Haggai ends with God promising to make Zerubbabel an extremely important person in the history of the world, someone whose life had deep, deep, lasting, eternal, even significance. And that the way God did that is by making Zerubbabel part of Jesus' family his forefather, by bringing him into a particular relationship with Jesus, the relationship of family. And because Zerubbabel is part of Jesus' family, with that relation becomes a wonderful, glorious responsibility to rebuild the temple. Now here's what I want us to see. God does the exact same thing for every person who trusts in Christ. 
God gave Zerubbabel significance by making him part of Christ's family. He does the same thing for the church. The church is the family of God. Zerubbabel is a forefather of Christ. We are his brothers and sisters. For God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That's Romans 8, 29. All who receive him, who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. That's John 1, 12. So if we read this passage and we understand it in light of the, the whole Old Testament and we see just how significant Zerubbabel's life was because of how he was related to Jesus and because of what he was asked to do by God, Understand that you have that same significance. Appreciate how valuable you are, not because of what you've done or because of what you can write next to your name or because of who your family is or because of anything about you other than your relationship to Jesus. If you are part of Christ's family, the way Zerubbabel was, That makes you someone extremely significant and it carries with it a responsibility. Zerubbabel, because he was part of Christ's family, was tasked with building the temple of God. And because you are part of Christ's family, because we are part of Christ's family, we are tasked with building the temple of God. It's the same task. Here's the connection we have to make. The temple, Christ, the church. And that connection becomes clear when Jesus is standing at the temple in the Gospel of John. And he's talking about the temple. And he says, destroy this temple in three days and I will raise it up. Sorry, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews, they think of everything that Zerubbabel did to build the temple and how difficult it was. And they say, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? And then John says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. So the temple, God's presence with his people, points forward to the reality, which is Christ's presence with his people, Christ's body. But we are the body of Christ. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. That's 1 Corinthians 12, 27. The church is the body of Christ. The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Individually, our bodies are temple. Our bodies are temples for the Spirit. The Spirit fills us, connects us to Christ. And we are being built together into the temple of God as living bricks. That's the way Peter puts it. Where does God's spirit dwell now? It dwells in the church. So we have our task to build the temple. And building the temple looks like being ambassadors for Christ. That's how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians. We are stamped with God's signet ring when the Holy Spirit is poured out into our heart, when the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ. So that God's character is impressed upon us and we are able to imprint God's distinctive signature on whatever he brings into our hands. And what does God's distinctive signature look like? Love, joy, peace, hope, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. It's the fruits of the Spirit. Temple, Spirit of God in the temple. 
The Holy Spirit puts Jesus in Mary's womb. Remember, we read the Magnificat where Mary's praising God for doing this. The body of Christ, the church, and now the Holy Spirit producing fruit in us as we are sent out as the signet ring of God to imprint his signature on his world. So we have so many things we do every day. We have many responsibilities. We have plates spinning that we're trying to, trying to keep in the air. We have family and work and every different thing going on. And all of these responsibilities are extremely important. But in all those responsibilities, we have to recognize that their importance comes from the way they're related to the one great thing that we're meant to do, which is to build the temple. To, to spread light and life. Just like the tabernacle was this, this central place, the temple was this central place placed in the middle of the people of Israel, and God's presence is there, and it's supposed to be like this light that pulsates and people are drawn to the light. The other nations are drawn to the light and they become like Israel and the light spreads. But now, because of what Christ did in dying for us and rising again and redeeming us, reconciling us to himself and sending us out, it's like God is taking clusters of lights, congregations of people, individual people and sending us out to the ends of the earth to be light and life wherever we walk. When I think about spreading light and life, um, I think about an image that comes from a novel by the Christian author George MacDonald. George MacDonald was one of C.S. Lewis's mentors. He was someone he looked up to. Actually, I quoted from um, The Great Divorce a few moments ago, and George MacDonald shows up in The Great Divorce. He's the one who gives Lewis, this imaginary tour of heaven and hell. He's his tour guide. That's George MacDonald. So George MacDonald um, gives us this image, though, that, that to me captures what it looks like to be a source of light and life, to be overflowing with the love of Christ by the Holy Spirit. And here's what MacDonald says. He describes this little open glade in a forest. And in the glade, on the root of a great oak, is sitting, he says, the loveliest little girl. And MacDonald says, her eyes are full of the laughter of the spirit, which sets them alight with a liquid shining. Her eyes are full of the laughter of the spirit, which sets them alight with a liquid shining. And on her lap, her lap is full of flowers of all colors. Flowers of all, and MacDonald says, these are flowers, you've never seen them before. You've never seen anything like this. And the girl's playing with them. She's tumbling them about, she's um, lifting them and tossing them, and then once in a while, she'll pick off one flower, separate it from the rest, and she'll throw it away onto the ground. But instead of falling limp to the ground, the flower takes root, and it grows comfortably in the warm grass. That's what I think of when I think of being so full of the love that the Holy Spirit pours out into our hearts that it shines in our eyes and overflows to everything we touch. That's how we build the temple. God's Spirit breaks into the world, breaks into our lives, and through us brings light and life. And if God does that 
through us, then who knows what our lives might mean in the hindsight of heaven. A few years ago, my children were given a book that retells an old folktale. The book's called The Three Trees. And it talks about these three little trees. The three little trees, they're up on a hill. They're growing on a hill. And as they grow, they're dreaming of what they want to be when they grow up. They're thinking of the magnificent responsibilities that they hope to one day hold. The wonderful uses that they hope to be put to. And so the first tree wants to be a treasure chest, responsible to hold precious jewels. The second tree wants to be a great ship, carrying kings across oceans. And the third tree, she doesn't want to be cut down at all. She wants to grow and grow and become the tallest tree in the world so that people look up at her and their eyes are forced to turn toward heaven and they contemplate God. So time passes, the rain falls, the trees grow, become large and strong. And one day, three woodsmen walk up the hill to cut down the trees. The first woodsman cuts down the first tree, the one that wanted to be a treasure chest, and turns it into a feeding box for farm animals. The second woodsman cuts down the second tree, the one that wanted to be a mighty ship carrying kings, and turns it into a humble fishing boat. And the third woodsman cuts down the third tree, the one that wanted to guide people's eyes to God, and turns her into beams, wooden beams, that are just left in a lumberyard. And years pass, and the trees nearly forget their dreams. But then a young woman takes a baby and wraps it in swaddling cloths and puts it in the feeding trough. And suddenly that first tree is holding the most precious treasure in the world. And then the second tree, the fishing boat, is carrying a group of tired fishermen across a lake. And a storm rises up, and it's a dangerous storm. And a man who was sleeping in the boat wakes up, and he stands up and he raises his hand and he says, peace, and the storm stops. And the second boat was carrying the king of heaven and earth. And the third tree, her beams, they're taken from the lumberyard and they're formed into a cross. A man's hands are nailed to it. But then on Sunday, the sun rises and that third tree feels the earth tremble with joy. And now every time we think of that third tree, we think of God. We think of the God who died for us. Lord, help us to discharge our responsibilities faithfully under the lordship of our servant king. Let us neither be overwhelmed by what you have put before us to do, nor impressed with ourselves. 
but help us to hold the weightiest things, even our lives, lightly. Guide us to see ourselves in light of what you are doing, in light of who you are. And give us eyes to see how even the smallest things are heavy with the weight of glory. In Jesus' holy name, amen.